Welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. My name is Lisette Jacobson, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Today's topic is Hamilton history and cancel culture. We uh, are just so excited about uh, this topic. We um, want to be honest, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. We are definitely Hamilton fans, and so that was certainly something that brought this to our attention. But really, I think that it's something larger than that. Uh, it brought us to the conversation of history and how it's currently being taught, and then also how we can have a different response other than cancel culture. So again, I think you're going to enjoy the episode today. Thank you for joining us. Lisette, why don't you start us off? Sure. So um, my husband and I actually went to see Hamilton and we raved about it. And so then we went to see it a second time with the McDavid's and we just had a blast. I, I don't know about you, Maurice, but if I recall correctly, you walked out super into it. We loved the music. And it just gave us a very interesting perspective that we weren't very familiar with prior to that. And I'll be honest, I knew very little about Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I recognize that this play came out in, or I'm sorry, this musical came out in 2015. And I did not get a chance to see it until 2019. I had heard you talk about it and Brett talk about it with such uh, enjoyment and excitement. And so we just made a whole evening out of it. We, you know, got dinner together. Everything was lovely, made our way across to the beautiful theater there uh, in Chicago. And um, legitimately there were points in the, the musical in which I found myself in tears out of sheer excitement about what was going on, amazement from, from the music. Um, and then the raw emotion of, of looking at um, uh, Hamilton lose uh, his son and, and then uh, Eliza losing not only her son, but her husband. Um, sorry if you haven't seen it yet, but hopefully you know enough about history <laughs> right, to know that, uh, that uh, Hamilton dies. So um, uh, shock, shock alert there, right? Right. So now fast forward, though, and we are in the summer 2020. And we're in the middle of a pandemic and Disney announces that they will be um, showing the Hamill film. And we were excited, right? We even made an evening out of that and we watched it together on July 3rd. And so this, I think, gave access to a much bigger audience. But with that came the hashtag cancel Hamilton. Yeah. So when I, when I saw this, my, my wife pointed it out to me. She was on 
Twitter and pointed it out. I went and began to investigate it and, and read a little bit more about where people were coming from. No, I apologize. It actually was not my wife. It was uh, a friend, uh, a colleague that I follow on Twitter um, and uh, who's into culturally responsive teaching and learning. And, and he said that Hamilton was brown washed white supremacy. And my heart just kind of sunk because my initial <laughs> response was that of a fan. Mm. And, and certainly, I, I want to be forthright before we even continue with this conversation and acknowledge I am a fan. I loved the music. And so in viewing it as a musical, I think that it is hands down one of the top pieces of, of art that I've ever seen. And I think that you bring up a great point, Maurice. And I think one of the things that we should talk about first is that it has received criticism from both sides. You know, quote unquote liberals have taken issue with the fact that it glosses over the fact that the founding fathers were slave owners. Another criticism was that Hamilton was not as against slavery as the show portrays. Um, and that it must be canceled, just like we are taking down monuments across the nation. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so what I would say first is that there is no doubt in our mind that Hamilton and most of the founding fathers were either pro-slavery or were willing to accept slavery in order to get to their ultimate goal. And mm -hmm. so whether you are an active participant or you are simply a bystander, there is a role that these men played. It's really intriguing when you begin to read about the history of, of what some of these men wrote. Thomas Jefferson famously wrote letters stating that slavery would one day tear the country apart and potentially lead to a civil war. Uh, he was able to, to prophesy that you know, 80 years in advance of it happening, um, but that there was this political moment that simply stated we cannot let that be the thing that, that stops us from forming as a nation. So I think I say all of that to, to, to say that there are several points in the musical, several characters, uh, for example, John Lawrence, who actively is written as a person, maybe even beyond what he actually was, but wanted to have the first all-black regiment and, and free slaves. And so I think there was a, 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 an, a, an attempt to cover that. You know, Alexander Hamilton did the same. One of the things that I did, um, and that I think I credit to Hamilton, is that it did make me go back in time and do a little bit more research. And I think that's what it has done for a lot of people. And you talk about Jefferson writing letters. Hamilton wrote a letter to John Jay in 1779. He was the president of Continental Congress in which he states a desire to create about three or four black battalions to assist in the war. And part of what that letter included was you know, saying that black soldiers would make excellent soldiers with proper management even though that some say they're inferior and that an essential part of the plan is to give them freedom with their muskets. And so that is something that is written. And so I think that is, serves as evidence that even if it was for his own 
political gain or his own um, climbing up the ladder, so to speak, that he did express a desire to free enslaved people. And um, that was actually very taboo at the time. And it wasn't without resistance. Yeah, so the other piece to, is, is that we know, mm-hmm. right, again, we know, like you mentioned, this is really maybe even selfish reasons for him uh, wanting to end slavery. And, and it doesn't sound like it was ending slavery in general, but it was more so for these specific people. We, we know that. Mm-hmm. And so how do, we, how do we get to a place, though, where, where we can acknowledge the evil and acknowledge that there was this economic system that he came up with that makes him noteworthy in history. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reserve this next thought for a little later in the conversation, but the way in which we talk about the founding fathers currently is not healthy. Yeah. And, and, and so I think that, that there's something to be said about that. So let me ask you about this, though. What about the, the, the casting of black and brown people? So another criticism that I've heard on the other side is that because if, for those of you who have not seen it, um, there's a lot of hip hop, rap, and some have criticized him and saying that he had to cast black and brown actors because it would have been absurd for white actors to perform with that style of music. And so he really didn't do it to push the envelope. It was more out of necessity. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it seems intentional. It seems like there, there was purpose. Part of the issue that has come up, though, is the idea that these black and brown people were playing enslavers. Mm-hmm. And so they were playing these men and women who, who potentially or most certainly in the case of Jefferson, in fact, in one of the scenes, and I didn't notice it until I rewatched it on Disney plus Thomas Jefferson refers to Sally and mm-hmm. says, Sally, would you get that letter for me? Sally of course is the historical figure that we know that Thomas Jefferson had children with Sally was an enslaved African-American. And so Again, I feel like Lin-Manuel attempted to engage in some of these conversations. Yeah, Um, you also see that too, where he, you know, that line with immigrants, we get the job done. And he, in some of his interviews, has spoken to the fact that Hamilton is an immigrant story. Now, I will say for me, one of the criticisms, though, that I, that I do agree with is this notion of pull yourself up by the bootstraps, because that ideology is used to keep people of color oppressed, right? If you could just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and work just as hard as everyone else, you should be able to make it. And so in that song um, with, how does it go? <laughs> Wait, uh, not throwing away my shot. Yes, yes, yeah. I am not throwing away my shot. (laughs) Right, and what does he say after that? I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, 
and I'm yeah. not throwing away my shot. And so some people have criticized those lines as kind of feeding into that pick yourself up by the bootstrap ideology. Another interesting thing that I've noticed is I have been following the cancel Hamilton hashtag and there are also people who are saying that Hamilton is racist because it has black and brown people portraying white historical figures. And so, you know, we've all heard um, how the Simpsons have been condemned for having white actors voice characters of color. And so that since has stopped. Um, we also had most recently the voice actor Mark Henry for the Cleveland Brown show saying he was going to step down. And then we also have Kristen Bell who stepped down from voicing a biracial character. So now the argument is Hamilton has no right to be played by Lin-Manuel who is Brown. So it's interesting that you, you're hearing this conversation right from both sides of the aisle. And I think that really highlights uh, there's no way to win. Yeah, that, that's a very dangerous position, a very dangerous line to walk. Because I have, as, as a young person, I was always involved in musical theater. Uh, I was involved in, in doing different plays. And I always felt like being someone who was black limited my ability to play certain roles because they could not imagine that character as someone who was not white. So I could not be Prince Charming. I feel like we have to have an understanding that when we go to the theater, unless that racial identity plays an absolute role in that character, then have it played by anybody. Now, of course, there is the argument that being Alexander Hamilton does uh, is impacted by being white, right? Because he, at that time, you had to be a white male in order to uh, vote in order to, you know, really have a voice, a white landowning male, nonetheless, which again is an interesting part of his story. But do you think that a brown person or a black person playing Hamilton does not, or does not have the capability to tell that story? I mean, really, they do. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yes, he was a white historical figure, but it does not mean that a black or brown person is not capable of telling that story. And I think though that's where the criticism comes where if we aren't gonna have white people portray people of color, then why is the inverse okay? Yeah, so I do think obviously that, that it, 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 particularly in the way that this story was told, the use of hip hop and, and R&B the the ability to modernize uh, part of this storytelling. Here's what I would say. I would argue that this musical is much more so about human nature. It is a story of human nature rather than just a story of American history. And so I think that's why I was okay with not necessarily covering every piece of it, because in terms of literature, you really have these two characters that are, are, uh, stand in, in opposition to one another with Aaron Burr, who says, I'm willing to wait for it. And then you have Alexander Hamilton, who says, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm not throwing away my shop. I'm going to get it right now. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea of these two people that, that exist regardless of race, there are people who are driven completely by ambition and are willing to hurt people in order to get what they want. And then there's people who are so hesitant and unwilling to stand up for anything. Mm-hmm. So that way they can save face. And so I think that's where I saw that story. And that story can be told regardless of, of the race. Um, I agree with you 100%. So it has been interesting to see both sides. I think another thing we need to remember is that this is a musical and not necessarily a documentary. And it is impossible to cover all aspects in a two-hour and 40-minute show. And I know that personally for me, I did not walk away thinking, wow, Hamilton was such a great guy. There are aspects to him that, I, that made me go, wow, he's a real jerk. And so I don't think it glorified him as much as I think people are saying it did. Again, the, 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 the idea being that if we look at this as a story of human nature, Mm-hmm. then we see a failed and flawed individual, mm-hmm. someone who cheats on his wife. Oh, I think we've seen that in politics before, <laughs> right? Someone who then, in order to try to save his own legacy, writes a pamphlet about cheating on his wife and publishes it for everyone to read. Mm-hmm. One of the areas in which... Um, Lin-Manuel takes artistic uh, liberty is in the scene with Eliza, the song Burn. And again, that speaks to human nature. That speaks to hurt. That speaks to heartache. That speaks to pain that, that can be exhibited in relationships of all peoples. It's universal. It's universal. Um, another great thing to come out of this, I think, is the way that it has captivated students and made them want to learn more about history. And I think that it allowed for some of that critical thinking to take place, right? You expressed and I expressed that after leaving the show, we did start Googling. And I I remember in the car ride, we were like, oh, he had other kids and it wasn't just the one son who died in, in the musical. And so what a great opportunity to compare and contrast some of those things in a history class. Exactly right. I, I think I think that ability to take this and not teach it as this is history, right. but to take it and, and begin to uh, look at it through that critical lens, look at it through um, uh, even that culturally responsive lens and say, okay, in what ways does this connect to me? And in what ways does this very much so uh, differentiate from me? But But again, that brings us to, you know, part of what we're talking about today, because you and I now are saying, well, hey, we could learn from this, even though it paints some pictures that are not accurate. How can we learn from it? We're at a place right now where the answer instead is, I don't like you, so I cancel you. And that's problematic. I have a really hard time reconciling that, that cancel culture. And For me, I wish that this energy that is being put on, you know, canceling Hamilton, let's cancel the way history is taught in public schools. 
I know that my experience in school, I probably know more black history than I know any Mexican American history, which is really telling because I don't even know that much black history. And I, I see how little is taught in, in public schools. But the fact that I know more black history than I know about Mexican history is, is so sad. I was just I was just wanting to say, Lisette, you brought this up the other day. I wanted to add to it, and then I want you to go back and finish what you were going to say. But you said the first language spoken on this continent, the first European language, I should say, mm-hmm. spoken on this continent was not English. It was Spanish, right? Yeah. Cristobal Colón. <laughs> right. You know what? And then another thing, too, is that we often think about the history of the United States is is going from East to West. Um, I will share a little snippet on how we teach history in the U.S. I tried to incorporate a unit on Cesar Chavez to one of my eighth grade units, and it failed miserably. My students looked at me, they were uninterested, and I remember being so upset because I'm like, here I am, a Mexican-American teacher trying to teach you a little bit of history. And what I failed to recognize is that that story just gets told over and over again. It's like Cesar Chavez and then who? Kind of like with Dr. King and Rosa Parks, right? They're the only ones that get talked about. And so I just kept recycling the same. But as I reflected, it's because I don't know. And the little that I do know about Mexican-American history is self-taught or things that I've learned or read about. So let me jump in with, with this idea. And you spoke to it a little bit. Absolutely, Dr. King, Rosa Parks. And when a teacher believes that they are truly woke, mm-hmm. they'll teach you Malcolm X. But still, that's it. They're not going to push much further than that. They and do not, not get to that- Black Panthers. You know what, and, and as we've been talking about how do we incorporate, you know, Mexican-American history and African-American history, there are so many examples of resistance that I think are a lot of missed opportunities. And what we have done historically is that white people don't get violence ascribed to them as an inherent trait the way that black and brown people do. And whenever violence is ascribed to white people, It is in the name of freedom. It is in the name of progress and something that was necessary for the revolution. But when, you know, I think back to that young lady who was saying, we learned violence from you. It is spot on. You think about the westward expansion. These were squatters invading lands that did not belong to them. And they were violent. And I mean, it literally was them coming to, to land and saying, we are going to take over now. So I saw in the middle of this conversation about taking down Confederate statues, which by the way, slavery existed in the Confederacy for the four or five years that the Confederacy existed. Slavery existed in America for the 200 years prior to that. So realistically, that flag has as much tarnish on it from slavery, probably more tarnish on it from slavery than does the Confederate flag. But as we talk about taking down Confederate statues, statues, this, that, and the other, here's one of the things that I will say. We teach 
American excellentism. Uh, I don't think that's a word. Uh, uh, we, 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 we teach that, that, uh, our heroes were perfect. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of reasons why that is not okay. And in fact, I believe it's immoral. Number one being this, if the purpose in teaching American history is to see where we've come from and to look at great people and perhaps emulate them, then it is important to know that they are not perfect. Why? Because I'm not perfect. So if I'm sitting here knowing my imperfections, but I believe somehow that this American hero, whether George Washington or MLK are perfect, then I believe I can never attain their level of excellency because they were perfect and I am not. We need to know their imperfections in order to be able to connect with them as a human being. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I will say is that there is truth in the statement that we learn as much, if not more, from people's failures than we do from their successes. The, the age-old adage, right, of Thomas Edison was, I failed a thousand times, but I learned a thousand ways that the light bulb doesn't work. Now, of course, we know more historically accurate, he potentially actually stole that light bulb from. Um, uh, that highlights, though, that narrative of white excellency. Right. And it's, and it's so detrimental. And going back to my point about violence, the fact that black and brown people have violence ascribed to them as an inherent trait is what legitimized things like the KKK. It's what legitimized the lynchings. It's what legitimized taking land from people that already lived there. And that is problematic. And so I think one way to empower our students is to show them those examples of resistance. And if we do not want history to repeat itself, we need to show them the power that they have to ensure that we are able to maintain our democracy. Yes. One of my favorite hip hop artists is a uh, lesser known uh, Christian hip hop artist by the name of Show Baraka. And he makes this statement. He says, um, why, why is it when every time we learn we about black people, we start with slavery. So even when I learn, you're still putting them chains on me. And it is, it is incredibly important that, that we start our conversations beyond slavery. Otherwise, the black man in America is only perceived as, as slaves and then moving forward, right? And so that second-class citizenship is innate here in this country because that's all that you ever were. But if we can begin to understand history beyond the or before the Americas, and then even the way that that Black people, while in slavery, like you've mentioned, how they resisted, how they contributed, the fact that they built Washington, D.C., Right. So what you see is the workmanship of, of black people in that city. Mm-hmm. You, and so if we can begin to tell that story and, and that story is important, not just for our students of color. Mm-hmm. That story is important for all of our students because it is how we begin to dismantle 
right? One of the, 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 the low level ways in which we can dismantle systems of white supremacy. You just made me think about um, the gold rush in 1849. What a lot of people don't know is that once the gold was discovered, there was this hierarchy on race that was developed and it was a way for uh, Mexicans to be discriminated, discriminated against. And it was necessary so that they would not be allowed to go in search of gold. So they gave priority to the Anglos. And then from there, there was a hierarchy. And mind you, this was their land. How absurd is that? And little do we talk about those things and how this racial construct has really been used for the betterment of, of white America. You're spot on. You're spot on. Let me ask you, did your parents talk a lot about Mexican history or Mexican-American history? Was, was there some learning that was taking place at home? You know what? No, my parents, um, I believe, only went up to third grade, both of them, because they were the oldest. And so, like I mentioned earlier, for me, the little that I do know has been self-taught and just, you know, remembering things from what I've read and what I've watched. And I was going to actually flip this on you, Maurice, and say, you know, history for Black children is, is slavery, right? And we need to start before that to learn more about, you know, the kings and the queens and all of that. But we are literally invisible. And I don't know what's worse, though. Is it worse to be invisible or for, your, for most of your representation to be through slavery? That's a hard question right? to answer. What I, what I will say is that by time, well, let me say this. Gr growing up, my mother taught me about people like the Black Panthers mm -hmm. and people like Dr. King. And, and, and there was uh, an understanding of Chicago 68, where my mother was 11 years old and saw those things happening. And so I'm appreciative of the history of the struggle. I'm appreciative of the idea that this is something, this fight that I'm fighting today, I have, I have folk behind me who have lifted me to where I am today. When I think about Mexican-American history, I, I can think back to specific units that I taught where we talked about the vaquero mm -hmm. and the fact that the word vaquero came from the word vaca, meaning cow, right, in mm -hmm. Spanish, and that it was actually these Mexican-American cowboys who taught the expanding uh, uh, settlers uh, that were coming from the East Coast, taught them how to work the land, taught them how to, you know, tame a, a, a horse and, and some of these different things. And the fact that one in every three cowboys were black or, 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 or Mexican, mm -hmm. that's not the story that we see so often in Hollywood, right? So we do need to be intentional about changing the imagery. And so I guess to answer your question, Lestat, I'm going to go with, it's better to be visible but we want to make sure that both our black and brown children are not only visible, but are able to see positive representations of themselves throughout history and currently.
couldn't have said it better myself. I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, and I know that there, I, last night I had a discussion with a group of Latinas, and that was a common theme that came up, was just this feeling of being invisible. And how in school, even if you were, let's say, Latina, but you're Panamanian, there really isn't anything out there, right? So there's layers to this. Yes, you're Latina, but we're not a monolith. And so there's so much diversity that exists even within that group. And how do we assure, going back to first episode, how do we make sure that we affirm our students' identities? And one of those ways is through history. And so it is very important that we don't confine it to Black History Month, Hispanic Heritage Month, which so often happens. And if we have any listeners out there um, who perhaps work in higher ed, I think that a real revision of our teacher preparation programs need to take place in which they learn or take a course even on black history, take a course on brown history. It can't just be one multicultural class and, and, and you're covered. I think that we have to take a hard look at um, some of those practices. And then for any educators who are listening, you can start to talk about these things at a very young age. I remember when I taught first grade, I, again, going back to critical thinking, wanted to give my students multiple perspectives. So we, for Columbus Day, read a book that was very, that showed him in a very positive light, right? And he discovered America, and this is why we have the day off. But then I also read Encounter, which is told from the perspective of an indigenous boy. And we did some comparing and contrasting down to the illustrations where one illustration showed him as very happy, smiles, very kind, and then encounter the illustrations, Columbus is depicted as, a, as this villain. And my first graders were able to engage in that kind of discourse, and so it is doable. I think sometimes we underestimate the capability of our students. So I had, a, 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 again, a Facebook friend who said, that, that the left is attempting to erase history. And I guess, you know, as, as perhaps, you know, one of my final thoughts here is just this idea that the left is not attempting to erase history. And, and I don't consider myself uh, left, right, uh, anything of the sort. I consider myself someone who studies history, all of it. And so it is necessary to say, without Christopher Columbus, would we have the full uh, extent of what we have today as a nation? I think it's fair to say that, that it's quite possible that that does not happen. Oh, I disagree. However, we also must acknowledge that Christopher Columbus's treatment of the indigenous people was inhumane. It was unchristian for everybody who likes to to make our country out to be something, uh, this great Christ-like nation. Mm-hmm. We have done things in our history as a country that have been inhumane, mm-hmm. unkind, mm-hmm. and and we can write it off as saying, well, that's how they thought at the time, but we need to acknowledge that then they thought wrong. Mm-hmm. It was, it, they thought incorrectly. 
And it's not only about that, it's the way in which it is written. We're not trying to erase history. We're trying to accurately depict it because the way in which it is written right now has contributed to systems of oppression, right? Um, The way it is written right now, we know that even like you said, Christianity was used to legitimize some of the things that happened. It's that manifest destiny. God wanted this to happen. God wanted us to conquer the indigenous people. And um, but, but back to the point about the disagreement, though, I, where I disagree with you in terms of it may be safe to say that it wouldn't have happened. I don't know. I mean, the indigenous were doing amazing things with um, the pyramids. And so I think there was a lot of knowledge there. And um, I think we may have evolved differently, but I, I still think that we would have achieved greatness. It just would have looked different. Absolutely. What, what, my, my statement was more so that, that who we are today is made up of every historical choice that has been made. And that's in our our individual lives, right, as individuals, um, but then also as a nation. So who we are as a nation is made up of every individual choice, right, every choice that has been made as a nation. Again, the good, the bad, the ugly, recognizing today that we live in perhaps the most diverse country in the world. That would not have happened without the atrocities of slavery without the atrocities of the Mexican-American War and and the taking of land. So we recognize that where we are today has been a result of those choices. I simply am asking us to acknowledge those choices as having a human impact, right? That that literally could be considered genocide what took place to the Native Americans. It is. It totally is. And and so I think simply we, we have to acknowledge that. Uh, Lissette, I, I, I think we're running long here, um, and we want to let people um, engage uh, with this topic themselves. If you've got thoughts or comments on this topic, please engage with us on our Facebook page or our, our Twitter page. Uh, both, uh, we're on both Facebook and Twitter. Lissette, as always, we like to leave our listeners with maybe one takeaway um, from the conversation today. Um, what would that one takeaway be for you? As teachers, we really should do some more research on the history of the United States and what it says to the students that are in our classrooms. How is it representing their experience? And um, any teacher prep programs out there, I really think it's time to revise and start incorporating some more black and brown history as a requirement Um, because we know that our student population will continue to diversify. So, Lissette, I'm going to quickly comment on that and then uh, give my little one-liner. What I will say is I had the opportunity to work with the Illinois State Board of Education uh, and the Diverse Learner and Teacher Ready Network to actually be a part of writing culturally responsive teaching and uh, leading standards that will be coming through soon. And those standards will be required to be met for our teacher prep program. And so it is coming. It is something that the state of Illinois is aware of. Can I ask you something real quick then? Yes. How many Mexicans were there? Several. Several? Several. Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, it was an incredibly diverse group, uh, black, 
males, black females, um, uh, Latinos, um, and I say Latinos because there were Mexican-Americans, but there also uh, were some Puerto Rican-Americans. Um, uh, so just, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good group. Um, uh, as well as as white educators, white administrators, um, who were a part of that organization. Um, and so, I only say that, and I only say that because it has been my experience that when there are these diversity initiatives, we do see uh, white representation, black representation, and then it's almost like a check mark: oh, one Latina or Latino and to kind of meet that quota and then it's even worse when we, once we start talking about asian americans as well so that's for another episode but i that's why i had to ask that question because that has been my experience often definitely definitely so so my one takeaway is 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 this there is an accusation that i have faced on occasion and that is that i hate america and it it's just not true it's not true because of my care and admiration for this country, its ideals, and what I believe we could be, I offer criticism. I think back to my athletic experience. When a coach stopped coaching me, I knew I had messed up. But as long as they were coaching me and asking me to be better, they knew I had potential to be better. They continued to coach me. So here's what I want you to know. For any person listening to this podcast who says, listen to these two liberal administrators, they must just hate America. Why don't they go back to where they've come from? And all of this is language that we've heard politically. I just want you to know, I don't hate America. I believe in what America can be, but the statistics tell us that we are not there yet. That's a great point. And it's, it's also what made us uh, connect this topic with Hamilton, right? We loved the show, but it's also something that is worthy of criticism. And, and Lin-Manuel himself said that any criticism towards Hamilton is fair game. And so I echo what you say. I too love America. I recognize that some of the things that I've been able to accomplish may not have happened had my family stayed in Mexico, right? They originally came here for that very reason. And so I too love America, but because I love it so much, I want to see it continue to be better for everyone. Well said. Folks, we want to thank you today for joining us for a bonus episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. I'm one of your hosts, Maurice McDavid. And I'm Lisette Jacobson. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Thank you.